0: A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So if you know the story, we're going to tell it tonight. But keep that context in mind as we read. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of his soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. Psalm 1 was about the righteous man. He's like a tree planted by the rivers of water that always bears fruit. And the wicked are not like that. Psalm 2 was about the opposition from the wicked against the righteous. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing saying, let us cast off the bonds of the Lord. But the Lord says, I've set my king on my holy hill. Now, obviously, these chapters were written individually, but as they were compiled, you can see how there is some logic and some structure to them, especially at the beginning. Because Psalm 3 is about the conflict between the wicked man and the righteous man. So if Psalm 1 establishes these two characters, these two very generic characters, and if Psalm 2 is about their conflict and the fact that the wicked will eventually lose, Psalm 3 brings it home to our life. And how are these great biblical principles that we see lived out in my everyday existence? And this is what is called a lament psalm, a psalm of lamentation. We have laments as well. Anytime we sing a song that calls upon the Lord to deliver us out of our troubles, that's a lament. We have a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations, where Jeremiah is weeping and mourning over the collapse of his city. And contrary to what some may believe, lamentation is not a sign of a lack of faith. Weeping and crying and even having a moment of despair is not a lack of faith. If that were the case, the Lord would never have included psalms like this one, and even others that take the language even farther, like Psalm 22 that says, why have you forsaken me, O my God? But what we do learn from laments is not just how to lament, but how to come up out of it. Now, this is also the first psalm that is identified as belonging to David who the Bible calls the sweet psalmist of Israel, the shepherd king. You know all about David, I'm sure, if you've read your Bible even a little bit. As I mentioned when we opened this book, the superscriptions at the top of these psalms, uh, there is a lot of dispute over how best to understand them. Uh, There are many that want to argue that These are not original to the text, and they should not be a a necessary guide for interpretation. And there are others that feel very strongly about it. I think the best way to put it, without rehashing all that conversation again, is that these are at least received tradition over how to interpret these. And I have no problem taking them as as a guide for how to interpret. So it tells us that David wrote this. The man after God's own heart, according to 1 Samuel 13, 14, it says that. So... How does a man after God's own heart handle situations like we're going to read about tonight? Well, we have it right here in front of us. So that's going to be great. And he's bemoaning the number of his foes who have risen up against him. If you want to put it in a modern English, David has haters. People that hate him, that want to see him fall that don't think about him fairly, they just want to see him lose. And David is walking through a situation where there are a lot of them, many of them, that are rising against him and saying there's no hope for David. And when you read that, the superscription absolutely makes sense. When it tells us David wrote this psalm on the occasion when he fled from Absalom, his son. We find the story of Absalom's rebellion from 2 Samuel chapter 13 through chapter 19. It takes up a huge swath of scripture. And if there's ever a part of the Bible that could be made into a movie or to a prestige TV series, it should be this one. It's got everything in it. Everything you could hope for. It's got intrigue. It's got battle. It's got spies. It's got betrayal. It's got high heights and and low lows. And it's all concerning this man, Absalom. We get a description of Absalom in 2 Samuel 14, 25 through 26. Ladies, are you ready for this one? Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year, he used to cut it when it was heavy on him. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. So by the end of the year, this man has this long, luxurious, flowing (laughs) mane of hair. And when it gets too heavy, he would cut it off. And then he would walk around, and then all the ladies would be like, oh, you can really see that jawline now. It's amazing. (laughs) He was the guy David's finest son, Absalom, it comes from two Hebrew words. Av, which means father, like the word abba is similar to our word daddy. Av means father. And salam, it's actually shalom, which means peace. So it's difficult sometimes to parse exactly how these names would have been translated. You don't ever want to push it too far. So is, is this father of peace or my father is peace or God the father brings peace? It's really not important. The whole point is it's the word for father and the word for peace, which amounts to the ultimate misnomer. If you understand Absalom's story. There was no peace between him and his father. And in fact, he would be the one that would break the peace against his own father. And a lot of what I'm going to do tonight is tell this story to you so that you can understand where David is coming from. It begins with a tragedy that had nothing to do with Absalom at first. Where, because David had so many wives, and and also concubines, he had many children. And this was a recipe for disaster. Absalom's sister, Tamar, was raped by their half-brother, Amnon. Who was actually David's firstborn son. He raped his half-sister, who was Absalom's full sister. Now, David had many great qualities. He was not a good father. And he did nothing when this happened. So Absalom had his brother assassinated and murdered. So now not only do we have rape in between the children of David, now we're adding murder on top of those things. And Absalom went into exile with his grandfather. Now Absalom's mother was a Geshurite princess. She was the daughter of the king of Geshur, who was one of those Amorite tribes that the Israelites were supposed to drive out. So Absalom flees to his grandfather's court and stays there. He was finally allowed to return, but David said, Absalom can come back to Jerusalem, but he cannot come into the king's court. I don't want to see him. I mean, there's a, there's pride here. There's good reasoning on in one sense. It's a very messy situation. Like you slaughtered your brother, who was also the heir to the throne. I'm not going to receive you in court. That's not like going out to coffee with your kid. Receiving him back to the court is, in a sense, bringing him back into the line of succession, establishing him as having the king's favor. But at the same time, you can you you should, in one sense, but you can also hardly blame Absalom for what he did. It's a giant mess. So when Absalom wanted to be allowed back into his father's house, he decided to go through Joab. Now, we'll learn about him later. Joab was David's rascally nephew and uh, was not a good guy. Let's just put it that way. And a lot of people tried to get to David through Joab. So what did Absalom do? He set one of Joab's fields on fire. Maybe you've ever tried to call somebody and they won't answer your calls. This is how Absalom got people's attention. And so Joab's like, what did you do this for? He says, well, I'm trying to get back into my dad's court and you're going to help me. And that's exactly what Joab did. And so it looked great that Absalom and David were reconciled. That It says David kissed his son. It was a very symbolic, very uh, matter of state thing to bring Absalom back, but during this time, Absalom began to scheme and plot to steal the kingdom away from his father. It seems that while he was with his Geshurite grandfather, no doubt weeping over the fact that I can't go home, my father doesn't want me, perhaps the king of Geshur was saying, son, I know you are an Israelite, but you must not forget you are also a Geshurite. And our people were in this land long before Israel got here. And if your father, if that's how he reigns, then perhaps it should be better for you. You can unite these kingdoms. And he comes back. And what Absalom does, he gets himself this chariot. He gets himself an entourage. He starts to strut around the place. He's handsome. He's the, the prince among princes, you might say. And he began to sit in the gate of the city. And everybody that came in through the city, Absalom would say, Hey, what, what's, your, uh, what's your complaint before the king? Why are you coming to court today? And... They would say, well, here's my situation. You know, so-and-so stole my donkey or maybe they set my fields on fire and I'm trying to get it uh, fixed. And what Absalom would say was, ah, you know what? If I was king, I'd give you exactly what you want because you're obviously in the right, but I don't know if if David's going to be able to hear you. I mean, you can try. I'll do what I can. And it says in this way, Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Because what happens then? Well, I spoke to the prince. And he said, I was right. And he's just so stylish and handsome and presidential. And look at him, such a nice guy. And and David wasn't able to help me. Even if David was right, you're not going to take that lion down because you're going to, you know what? Absalom was, maybe Absalom should be king. He stole the hearts of the people. Well, what happened was at the council of a man named Ahithophel. Now, Ahithophel was the grandfather of a woman named Bathsheba. So if you know your your Bible stories, Bathsheba was married to a man named Uriah who was a righteous Hittite, a Gentile who had joined himself to the, the tribes of Israel. David took Bathsheba into his own bed, had a child with her, had Uriah killed and began to raise this child until Nathan the prophet called him out. Now God forgave him. Ahithophel did not. And Ahithophel says his counsel was so wise. If you heard Ahithophel, you might as well be hearing the voice of the Lord. And Ahithophel probably figures out that Absalom is not happy with his dad, and so They scheme together to take the kingdom from David. They go back to Hebron. Why did Hebron matter? Because before Jerusalem was the capital of Israel, Hebron was the capital of Israel. It was Caleb's city. It was the place where David had reigned for seven years. Imagine if somebody were to go back to Philadelphia right in front of the Liberty Bell by Independence Hall and declare themselves to be the new president of the United States. You're saying something by doing that. And they announced... Absalom is king of Israel. And everybody went after Absalom. David was forced to flee because Absalom and all of his hosts marched on Jerusalem. And David had to flee. The great warrior, the slayer of Goliath had to leave. And when Absalom came into the city, Ahithophel told him, he says, Absalom, the people love your father. They love you, but they don't hate David. You see the difference. And he says, you've got to do something that will prevent any any compromise from being made. You've got to do something that is going to provide such a break between you and your father that you're not going to be plagued your whole life by old men coming in and saying, can't we work something out? So what they had done, David had left 10 of his concubines behind to look after the house. And it says that Absalom went up on top of David's palace and pitched a tent where everybody could see. And he went in and had sexual relations with all ten of his father's concubines to do something that was so gross and such an insult to his father that uh, by his own manhood and by his own righteousness, he could not allow any reconciliation ever to happen. And as you see David running he, he meets person after person who are cursing him and mocking him and lying to him and saying, that's what you deserve, son of Jesse. That's what you get for casting down Saul. Look how the mighty have fallen. And so David, perhaps as he's writing, pulls out his pen and writes, Oh Lord, how many are my foes? many are rising against me, saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. As always, as he had done, since he was a shepherd boy, fighting off lions and tigers and bears, He turned to the Lord in song. And do you see what especially stung David is in verse 2? That they were not just rising against him, they were saying there is no salvation for him in God. It especially stung that nobody on his side or anybody else thought that God could get him out of this situation. And it says there, Selah. This is actually the first time in the Psalms we see the word Selah. Now, we are not a thousand percent certain about what this word means. If you want to literally translate it, it means lift up. It's an imperative, like a command, lift up. In Greek, the Septuagint, it's translated diapsalma, which means pause. You can hear the word psalma in there, like psalm, and dia means through. So pause, so we we pretty much understand that this is a musical term, perhaps a liturgical term, probably something along the lines of musical interlude. We play this bit, and then the musicians are going to play, and then we'll come back and we'll sing again. At the very least, it's a time for us to pause and think about what has just been written. The theme of Psalm 3 is about whether or not there is, in fact, salvation for the righteous when the wicked turn against them. In particular, if we want to be specific, it is about when wayward children break their parents' hearts. That's the context of this psalm. Of course, it was more than that. It was a coup. It was a rebellion. It was David seeing all these people that he thought were with him fall apart. But at the heart of it was his beloved son rising up against him. Perhaps you have felt that way. And I know that there are those of you in here that have been through exactly that. Not only to see that thing that your child is rising up against you and casting off everything that you taught them. The relationship you thought you had with your child is not what you thought it was. And not only that, you realize that everybody else has been talking about this without you in the room. And now you're starting to hear things like, I told you so. People saying things, it won't get better. Your kid is gone, just get over it and move on god can't help you don't sit around praying and seeking the lord if you want to fix this you've got to solve it yourself that when no one else has any hope maybe even least of all you that god can help third john 4 he says i have no greater joy than that my children walk in the truth may we invert that and say there is no greater grief than to see our children walk away from the truth this is where david is and can i tell you God is not afraid of those deep, dark feelings you have when that moment comes. Is there anybody who understands what it means to see the ones who are supposed to love you walk away from you better than our Lord? And this chapter wrestles with that answer. Taking these feelings, legitimate, real feelings, bringing them to God and learning how to work through them as David did. Shall we read verses three and four? But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I just mentioned that a proper biblical lament is deep sadness. It goes 110%. There's no stiff upper lip when the Bible is, is pouring out its heart. It says, this is how I feel. I feel like nobody cares and nobody believes that God will help me. You can't say that. You can't think that. Well, David did, and it's in your Bible. But a proper biblical lament is matched only in its depths of sadness by the heights of faith to which it rises immediately afterward. You can't say, well, I'm lamenting biblically if you never have a moment where you say, but God. Already, even in verse 3, David begins to look to the Lord as the true provider of all the things he had lost. Everything he was looking to gain from his throne and more particularly from his son, his legacy, his progeny, truly is only found in the Lord our God. He says God is his shield. That's what David needed right now on the run from his his kid. He needed a shield. He needed a protector. The one who was going to protect him from his son who had now become his enemy. And not only that, but from all his haters, all the people that were using this opportunity to kick him while he was down and tell him what they really thought about him and to come and get in his life and say, and you're probably going to say you trust in God. You think God will help you? Lord, I need a shield. No doubt he had counted on his son to be his shield. To be the one that would protect him and stand up for him and fight for him. And by rights, Absalom should have been a shield for his father. As our children ought to be shields for us when they grow into that role. But ultimately, even our beloved children will let us down. Even if you name them something beautiful like Absalom. Even if they're beautiful from the head of the top of their head to the sole of their feet. The only true shield that lasts forever is the Lord our God. You're my glory. Now, don't think of this as, oh, all the glory belongs to the Lord. Yes, ultimately. But David was the king. David had a glorious position. There was renown attached with being king of Israel. That not only was David the giant killer, he was the one that had replaced Saul. He had united the clans, finally conquered Jerusalem, brought peace to Israel. They were no longer scattered. They were now united under this mighty king, the man after God's own heart. And now look at the son of David. Is there anybody like that kid? What kind of father must David be to raise a kid like that? And now all the pride that he took in his son, all the proper pride that he took in what God had done for him, the renown and the glory was gone. And he was forced to come back to the place he had been when he was a shepherd boy and had no glory from anybody. The only glory I receive is from my Lord. You are my glory. Not the fact that I have a throne and a kingdom and a son that is the envy of everybody across the land. My glory is that I know the living God. And number three, he says, God is the lifter of my head. When you were crying as a little kid, your mother, your father would come and put their hand under your chin and lift it up. Chin up, we say, right? Chin up, it's all right. The joy that was supposed to be his by his son. I don't know this to be true, but I've heard it, that the only thing better than being a parent is being a grandparent. I've heard it's all the joy with none of the responsibility. (laughs) But that's the kind of joy that children are to bring, right? is I've raised a child and now my kids are having kids. And that wonderful, so all too short season of having little kids, I'm getting to relive again and again through my children. That joy. Absalom had taken all of that legitimate fatherly hope and thrown it in his dad's face. And David was forced to remember, the only one that can lift up my head is not my little boy, it's my God. And that That phrase, the lifter of my head, becomes even more significant when you read what 2 Samuel 15, 30 tells us. This is as they were fleeing from Jerusalem. It says, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up, weeping as they went. So you have this picture of David in mourning, barefoot, running from his own citadel with his head covered like this, weeping as he goes up the hill. And what does he write as he gets back into that tent? But you, O Lord, are the lifter of my head. He had fled from the armies of his son. Realized also that the people were not with him. No doubt they had tried to rally the troops and rally the cause. And they had found very fast people weren't quite sure where their loyalties lie. And if I have to choose, I might choose Absalom. However, he did have friends. And he had not been slain in the night. His whole court had not risen against it, like some sort of coup or a banana republic where everybody in the the palace comes together and throws David out the window. Now that David has felt that initial pang of sadness, he's beginning to realize, God is still with me. When he began to leave the city, Abiathar the priest and Zadok, the head of the Levites, came out carrying the Ark of the Covenant. Because of David, wherever you go, we're going with you. Now, I'm sure David loved Abiathar and loved Zadok. But in that moment, I don't think he had ever considered before what their friendship truly meant to him. You know, I, I can especially speak for the men here. Loyalty matters. Loyalty. What does loyalty mean? Loyalty means, yeah, you might even be in the wrong, but I'm still going to stand by you. I might not approve of what you did. I might say, you know what? Maybe Abiathar had been one of those guys rebuking David. You got it. What are you going to you going to keep your son out for the rest of time? Either deal with him according to justice or show him mercy. Stop this halfway stuff. But when the chips were down, like, David, we love you. You're God's king. And you're God's anointed. And wherever you go, we go. He actually told him to remain behind and stay back. And it's lucky he did. There was a man named Hushai, the archite, that said, David, I'm going with you. And he said, Hushai, I love you, brother, but we're going to be hustling through the wilderness. You're an old man, and and I, I can't wait for you, and I cannot be responsible for your loss. So Hushai stayed behind in the palace to be a mole for King David. He still had friends. All was not lost. In the darkness of the moment, especially if we consider the day you hear when your son or your daughter comes to you and says, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. Or you find out the secret life they've been living. You find something under their bed that just breaks your heart. You see the person that they're with and you start to hear stories from other people that you just don't want to believe. Everything seems hopeless. What's the point of keeping going? This has been everything. I poured all of my love and my treasure and my time into this kid and now they just don't want anything to do with me. You must look to the Lord because he is your shield and your glory and the lifter of your head. God answers prayers, and when heartbreak comes, you have help. That's the whole point of this psalm. There is help available for you when the heartbreak comes. We find God in the wilderness, which is where David was fleeing. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. In fact, we're going to get to this. I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'm just going to say it. One of the points Ahithophel is going to make as he counsels Absalom, don't let your dad get into the wilderness. You're not going to catch him. Because once he gets there, buddy, that's where he's strong. And it's the same thing for you and I. If you can learn when things are good, that God is with you and cultivate that friendship and that relationship between you and the Lord, then when everything collapses, you'll be in the wilderness. But because you've been there already, you'll be comfortable and you'll be ready for the battle. After you've allowed yourself to grieve, you've got to sit up, especially you dads, your husbands, you men, and take stock of where things actually are. Because you all know grief can cloud your vision. There's nothing good. Nothing is working. It's all broken. Well, that's not true. And you realize that you might have been struck down, but as Paul says, we're struck down, but we're not destroyed. As hard as it may be, ask yourself that question, who's still with me? You know who went with David as he left? It says the 600 men who had been with him since Gath, all of David's mighty men said, hey, are we doing this again? (laughs) I'm still with you, baby. Which is amazing, because when you consider what he had done to Uriah, they still loved their king. They had spent years fleeing from Saul together. Another king wants to kill David. Where's my sword? I'm going with him. Hushai the Archite, Abiathar and Zadok, the priesthood, was still with him. Who's still with you? As hard as that may be, even if you might say to yourself, I would trade all of these people to have Absalom back, that's not your situation. Take joy in what you have. David was devastated, but God had provided a shield for him. He would restore his glory, and he would lift his head. So let's see what happens in verse 5. I lay down and slept... That's kind of hard to do when your heart's broken, isn't it? I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Imagine the night David had. When you just fled your own capital city because your favorite son is coming to kill you. I lay down and slept. Now you might think, if you don't know the story, what a boring little verse. I lay down and slept and woke again. Oh, very profound. Yeah, it is. If you know what it feels like to have your stomach tied up in knots? To be crying so much and not feel it getting any better? It's one thing to cry when you know it's going to be all right. But if you don't know that it's going to be all right, it can just keep coming and coming and coming. But he says, I lay down and slept and I woke again. Why? Because God sustained me. Not because, oh, I've just learned to take a, a stoic view of life and to let things come at me and I'm tougher than... now because the Lord sustained me. What happened? Well, when Absalom took the capital city, he said, all right, now what do we do? David's out with his mighty men again, and that doesn't go well for people that oppose them. Ahithophel, as I told you, counseled, you've got 12,000 men with you. Saddle up now and go get him. Don't let him get away, because David is a man that knows the wilderness, and if you let him get there, that's where he wins. That's home field advantage for David. But, Absalom says, well, I want to be a good king. Hushai, what do you have to say? Now, Hushai was on David's team. I told you, it's a great story. You've got to go read it. Hushai says, here's what we do. All right. Yeah, you can go chase David now. But I mean, David, it's kind of funny. He's kind of talking up David, even in his Like your dad, your dad is like a bear, man. And he's like a bear robbed of her cubs. And you don't want to get between him. And you just did all that with his concubines. So here's what you do. Muster all the people together. Gather a whole armies of Israel and you march at the head. What's he doing? He's stalling for time. Because I don't need to win, you know, have David win the battle. I just need to give David time To get away. And everybody says, Hushai's counsel is better than Ahithophel's. Now, if Ahithophel's was as good as the counsel of God, they must have thought Hushai really had some good stuff to say. And so what does Hushai do? He lets Abiathar and Zadok know who send two of their young men to go run and tell David. And if you read the story, they start telling David, but they're seen. And another kid runs back to tell Absalom, I know where David is. So then they come out looking for those two guys. They're at this lady's farmhouse, hide in the well. She covers up the well and puts dust all over it, so they don't know where it is. And they're sitting there hiding while they're searching the place looking for those guys. But David heard, Absalom might be coming for you. You need to run. And he did, and he fled. And 2 Samuel 17, keeping this verse in mind, I lay down and slept and woke again. David arose, and all the people who were with him, they crossed the Jordan, and by daybreak, no one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. That night was a significant one. Because once we're across the river, you're not getting an army across that river quickly. And Ahithophel, if you read the story, who was so smart... He knew that David has escaped. He says, this is not going to work now. And Ahithophel went back to his houses and hanged himself. Because he says, I've betrayed my king for his son, who didn't listen to me. And I know David, and David is going to win. And when he comes back, he's going to kill me. And perhaps there was a weight of guilt and grief that hung over him too. Taking out his own personal slights, as real as they were, out upon this man, God's anointed And David had allies among the Ammonites who knew David. The Gentiles helped David. That's what kind of man he was. And he began to gather his army together. He was back where he was strongest, in the wilderness. That night was an important one. Spies running back and forth, councils, intrigues going on. And David gets across the river. If they had not escaped, everything was lost. But he says, I lay down and slept and I woke again for the Lord sustained me. So I will not be afraid. As Psalm 30 verse 5 says, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Now you might see that's kind of a little victory though. Okay, you got away. He's still got 12 tribes to come after you, David. But it was enough for David to say, all right, I think we're going to get through this. He was no longer afraid. He says, I will not. Do you like that determination? He's not, what, how does David feel? He feels distraught. But he says, but I will not be afraid. That's that aspect of the will that comes in. We are to worship the Lord with our heart and with our emotions. Those things are not evil and wicked. But there comes a time where you've got to say, I'm going to do what is needed in spite of how I feel. And that's what David does. It's a determination of faith. The thousands of traitors that were arrayed against him. Men that had been his soldiers and sworn loyalty and fealty to him and worshiped with him in the temple or the tabernacle at the time. Now they're coming for him, but I will not be afraid. Because if God can get me through this night, he can get me through every night. Many crises begin with dark, dark days. You know, by the time the pandemic was over, we were all so ready for it to be done. Weren't you? but i realized as strong opinions as some of us had by the time that was over do you remember how afraid everybody was those first days we had no clue what this thing was i knew no you didn't (laughs) say this this could kill everyone don't leave your house that was a fearful time that's how crises begin you don't know after 9 11 when that happened we look back on it now and people say things like well we sort of panicked after that but do you remember remember that song do you have you forgotten how it felt that day We watch the towers falling down and planes coming out of the sky and the Pentagon. That's how these things feel when they start. But very often, if you can pass, so to speak, through the night and see the dawn come, you can take heart. Do you know where David crossed over, the place where he crossed the river? It says he went over and encamped at Mahanaim which is a Hebrew word that means two camps, which is where Jacob had brought his family after they were coming back from Laban. David crossed the river to flee from Absalom at the same place where Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord. And do you think David is doing a little wrestling with the angel of the Lord himself right now? Now you can see it right here in the Psalm. It's a symbol of change and transformation, reaping what you've sown, but growing through it and coming out on the other side. Too often, when things start to get better, we can't rejoice because they're not solved. You get a little victory, oh, but it's still not perfect. You know, you've got a daughter that doesn't want anything to do with you, doesn't want anything to do with Jesus and is running wild. Now they'll talk to you again. They still want nothing to do with Jesus and they don't want to come home. That's a time to Rejoice. And say, I was asleep and now I woke up and the Lord was there. He's going to get us through this and I'm going to get my daughter back. You've got to take the little victories as signs that the greater victory is still coming. Because in Christ we go from glory to glory. We are more than conquerors in Christ. Remember the theme of this psalm is we're asking the question, is there hope in God for the righteous? And the answer is yes. He will sustain you. And if you doubt it, try it. As another psalm says, taste and see. Just find out. It's a shame that it happens this way, but it's true nonetheless. Most of us first learn to trust God and learn the truth of all these things we read in the times of crisis and darkness. And then we get to the end and we say crazy things like, I wouldn't change that. I'm glad I went through that. You're saying you're glad that all the sin happened? No, no, no. When I look back on what God did in me through that, when I look at who I am now and try to imagine my character without that season, I wouldn't get rid of it. And as you get older and mature in Christ, you should be able to then see the next one coming over the horizon. And you might not be excited about it, but you can say, God got me through all these. He's going to get me through this one too. And I'm going to come out on the other side stronger than ever before in Christ Jesus. If God is with you, it does not matter how many haters rise up with lies and violence against you. And when you talk about wayward children, that happens where your parenting gets called into question. Your walk with Jesus gets called into question. All of your child's friends and even maybe your other siblings start to say, I've always thought this about you. Maybe you've been just trying your best to walk with Jesus and raise those kids the best way you know how. You know what? It doesn't matter if the Lord is with you. I will not be afraid of the many thousands of people who have set themselves against me. I won't be intimidated and embarrassed by the whispers that I see. I won't be heartbroken by the nasty Facebook and Instagram posts. I will not, because I know the Lord is with me. Verses 7 and 8, you kind of get, uh, this is the David we know. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. And what a selah that must have been. What do you think the end of that song sounded like? You ever think of that? What what it would have sounded like, as as amazing as these psalms are, imagine hearing them sung and played with great skill and arrangement and organization. Verse 7 is what we call an imprecation. You hear the word imprecatory. It's essentially, get them, Lord. That's an imprecation. David is calling for victory in battle to destroy his enemies. When is the last time you describe your God as the one who breaks the teeth of the wicked? You ever thought of the Lord as the one that smashes people in the face and knocks their teeth out? I don't like that. Well, it's in your Bible. You might want to get used to it, friend. Well, what about the commandment to turn the other cheek? Can I, I'll just give you the short version. That is about personal interaction. It has to do with insult, not assault. It has to do with somebody mistreating you. It doesn't have to do with something like this, where you've got an army marching against you. These are prayers for wicked men to receive their just reward. What does a man like Absalom deserve for something like this? He deserves to have his teeth broken? What do these men that call themselves soldiers of Israel deserve for rising up against the Lord's anointed? David wouldn't even kill Saul when he had the chance. And here's his own son rising up against him and all of his so-called loyal subjects. This was war and David needed to win. He deserved to win. He should win you got to be able to look at your life, look at what is righteous and say, this is what needs to happen, instead of dancing around and saying, I think it might be the Lord's will. Well, maybe God wants Absalom to win. No, God anointed David as king. Absalom was taking the kingdom through unrighteousness and sexual immorality. And David had made mistakes, but David had repented and come back to the Lord. He always did. Absalom was acting more like a Gesherite than an Israelite. And the Gesherites were to be driven out from the land without prejudice. This was war and David needed to win. So he called upon the God that he knew from his experience was a teeth smashing God. God. You ever see enemies of the faith in the world, whether it's in my case, it's been sometimes radical Muslim terrorists, where I'm just like, Lord, break the teeth of those men. Or you see these activists that are trying to bring homosexuality and sexual morality to our children. It's like, Lord, break the teeth of those people. Do you start to get it now as I explain it like that? Or maybe there's somebody that has drawn your child away from the Lord. Don't tell me you don't get down on your knees and say, break the teeth of the wicked, O Lord. You are permitted to pray prayers like that. Well, what happened? David suited up for battle, but his guy said, no, no, no. If you die in this war, we all die. You stay back. David was older now. And he said, we're going to go fight. So it was Joab and Abishai and then a man named Etai who led the men into battle. And the, the battle is a short little section. It says, they fought in the forest of Ephraim. So, you know, maybe you like the Battle of Endor from Star Wars. It was a forest battle. (laughs) And David's men routed the armies of Absalom. These were the mighty men, guys. You don't mess with them. You don't mess with the guys that slay lions in a pit on a snowy day. The guys that killed giants like David did. The guy that fought in the field of lentils and killed a couple thousand men by himself. You don't fight those guys in the woods. Come on. And you see the traitor himself, the handsome Absalom with his flowing hair, fled from the battle and his hair got caught in the branches of a tree. Uh-huh. That's right. And he's left hanging there. There's a whole, that, that, there's a sermon on vanity that preaches itself right there. <laughs> and David had told everybody, he says, go easy on Absalom for my sake. But, of course, his general was a guy named Joab. And if there's ever a story in the Bible where Joab was in the right, it's this one. Where he writes up, and there's all the men that have caught up with Absalom. And there he is, (laughs) hanging. And like, well, David said it was supposed to go so easy. And Joab said, I don't have time for this. And he says he took three javelins and he impaled the son of David right there hanging from the tree. Oh, that's so harsh. Justice. Breaking the teeth of the wicked. In Virginia, we have a phrase, six semper tyranus, always thus to tyrants, thus always to traitors and those that would rise up against the anointed of the Lord. Those that would say, let us cast off the shackles of the Lord because the God steps in and says, I have set my king upon my holy hill. Kiss the son lest he be angry. We see in that a living parable of what Psalm 2 teaches us. Well David heard that message and David had a hard time receiving it. David was crying and wouldn't come out of his room. So good old Joab showed up. Like, where's the king? Because all the all the soldiers were moping around, like, well, we won the battle, but do we do anything good anyway? And Joab shows up and Joab just kicks the door in. He says, What are you doing? My son is dead. Your son tried to take your throne and defiled your wives and made a mockery of you. And all these men rode out to battle for you, won the battle for you, and all you can sit there and cry about it. You want to lose your kingdom, David? This is how you lose it. You need friends like that, don't you? Maybe that you wouldn't want babysitting your kids. But they'll tell you the hard truth. And David did finally come up. He came to his senses and he praised the Lord. And we know that he praised the Lord because he's written this right here. And he writes about his own son, that God breaks the teeth of the wicked. All was restored. The old friends came home and David had peace. Is there salvation in the Lord? What did David say in verse 7? Save me, O my God. And that's exactly what happened. So all those in verse 2 saying there's no salvation in God. Verse 8, David said, salvation belongs to the Lord. Now we look at your situation. Your salvation might and probably is not the destruction of an army. But isn't it kind of cool to know that that principle applies even that big? What might it be? There'd be lots of things. In those situations, you are cleared by Scripture to lament. Don't be the Christian, guys, when somebody is heartbroken, that needs somebody to buck up real fast and get over something. The Apostle told us to rejoice with those who rejoice, but also what? Weep with those who weep. Sometimes the best thing you can do is just weep with somebody. Just to be there with them. And you don't let them despair. You don't let them start to rave and curse God. But if they've got questions, you might not have good answers. Just say, I'm here for you, man. I'm right here. You got me. You got one friend here. It's okay. You're cleared to lament according to the scriptures. You're also cleared to hope. And you are kind of instructed to hope. Sometimes I know where people are feeling really bad a situation, really bad about a situation, they're starting to feel better, but they feel like that's disrespectful to the, the danger of their situation to feel good about it. This especially happens when someone that we love dies, and we feel like it would be bad to actually start to feel better about it. Hope in the Lord. There is joy in the Lord. That's your strength. Look for the hope in the morning when the Lord sends it to us. And then you are also cleared to cry out for deliverance from your almighty God who crushes the wicked. Perhaps if you look at your life or the life of your wayward child, there's a person that's got to go. Maybe there is a man that has seduced your daughter, not just away from you, but away from the Lord Jesus. And you're like, Lord, break the teeth of the wicked. It could be the other way too. Maybe your, your son married a woman that has become like the leaky faucet that Solomon talks about. And she's pushing him and driving him away from you and away from the Lord and into all sorts of strange things. And you're like, Lord, you got to do something about her. Or maybe it's a college professor. Maybe it's a roommate or a friend or a podcast, some philosophy that they're listening to. I many times have looked out on the postmodernism sweeping our country. I'm like, Lord, break the teeth of the wicked. Well, what will come next? I don't know, but I will deal with that when it comes to. Maybe there's just a situation that you look at and like, I don't know how to fix this. Just come to the Lord and say, God, you strike all my enemies on the cheek. There they are. Go get them. And the thing is, all these things I'm describing are very normal human responses to these situations. Don't think that because you're a Christian, you are blocked from feeling and experiencing those things. David, the man after God's own heart, this is how he responded to that. And God stuck it in your Bible for you to read in the first person and take upon your own lips. God teaches us to endure through the nights. But he also tells us to take hope when the day comes and to fight for the situation. Isaiah 40, verses 30 and 31. Everybody loves these verses, right? Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. You ever been walking through a situation in your life and you just fall exhausted? I can't take one more step. This is, I've had it. That happens. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Your strength can't be renewed until it's been wasted. Once it's gone, then you can be renewed. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. Say, Lord, I can't run another step. He says, don't worry, I'm going to give you wings. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Who does that happen for? Those who wait for the Lord. And in situations like the one we're describing, especially if you've got a wayward son or daughter that's gotten away from you and Jesus, there's nothing to do but wait. And that's the hardest thing. You've said everything you can say. You've made every phone call. You've tried everything. And there's nothing left to do but wait. But you know, that's not a bad place to be because those who wait for the Lord will mount up with wings like eagles and you'll discover a strength that I never thought I had. Guess what? You don't have it. But Jesus does. And you sit back and you watch God win. Cry out to the Lord, my friends, for your fears, for your wayward children. We've got some in this very church that are starting to stray or have strayed. This generation, the statistics say 45% of children raised in the church walk away from Jesus by the time they finish college. That's a plague. That's, That's an enemy that needs to have its jaw broken. Is it not? But guess what? That's what my God does. Oh, Lord, help my kids. Yes, help our kids. But go to those people that are stealing the love of our children and bust their face, Jesus. That's biblical prayer, friends, for your enemies. It's okay to recognize somebody as your enemy. How are you supposed to love them otherwise? And see the reality of the salvation of our God. No matter what they say. Stop trusting in God. Face reality. Just accept them the way they are. No, because there's something better in Christ. And I will sleep and I will wake and rise again. And salvation will come in the morning. And I would be remiss, after reading this psalm, not to consider our Lord Jesus. Is there salvation in the Lord? Our Lord's name is salvation who himself faced many foes, who said, there's no hope for him in God. He saved others. Let him save himself. Maybe Elijah will come and help you down. He cried out to God, Lord, into your hands I command my spirit. He laid down to sleep going down into the grave, but he woke. He came out of that grave. And the day is coming when he will strike down every enemy and bring that salvation to all those who love him and wait for his coming. Psalm 1 is of the righteous. Psalm 2 is of the wicked hating the righteous. And Psalm 3 demonstrates that the wicked will always fall before God's righteous people if they will wait upon Him and call for Him. I'll read one more time from Psalm 30, verse 5. That weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning.